This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of adult ischemic spondylolisthesis from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Adult ischemic spondylolisthesis is a common adult spinal condition characterized by subluxation of one vertebral body anterior to the adjacent inferior vertebral body caused by a defect in the pars interarticularis. Diagnosis is made with lateral radiographs. Flexion and extension lateral lumbar radiographs can identify the degree of instability. MRI studies can be helpful for central or foraminal stenosis. Treatment is a trial of non-operative management with NSAIDs and physical therapy. Surgical management is indicated for progressive disabling pain that has failed non-operative management and or progressive neurological deficits. Now let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence, spondylolysis is seen in 4-6% of the population, and there is an increased prevalence in sports that involve repetitive hyperextension, which is seen in gymnasts, weightlifters, and football linemen. As far as the anatomic location, 82% occur at L5-S1 and 11% occur at L4-L5, and these are due to forces in the lumbar spine being greatest at these levels and the facet being more coronal. Moving on to the etiology, the pathophysiology of adult ischemic spondylolisthesis involves foraminal stenosis. So adult ischemic spondylolisthesis at L5-S1 often leads to radicular symptoms caused by compression of the exiting L5 nerve root in the L5-S1 foramen. Compression can be caused by hypertrophic fibrous repair tissue of the pars defect, uncinate spur formation of the posterior L5 body, and bulging of the L5-S1 disc. Lateral recess stenosis is caused by facet arthrosis and hypertrophic ligamentum flavum. Central stenosis is rare due to the fact that these slips are usually only grade 1 or grade 2. Now let's talk about the classification of adult ischemic spondylolisthesis. The ones to know include the Wiltsey-Newman classification and the Myerding classification. So starting with the Wiltsey-Newman classification, this is divided into five types. Type 1 corresponds to dysplastic and can be secondary to congenital abnormalities of the lumbosacral articulation, including mal-oriented or hypoplastic facets, sacral deficiency, and a poorly developed pars. The posterior elements are intact, meaning there is no spondylolysis. However, type 1 corresponds to more significant neurologic symptoms. Type 2 is divided into three subtypes, type 2A, 2B, and 2C. Type 2A refers to an ischemic pars fatigue fracture. Type 2B refers to an ischemic pars elongation due to a healed stress fracture. And type 2C corresponds to an ischemic pars acute fracture. Type 3 is degenerative. Type 4 is traumatic. And type 5 is neoplastic. Finally, moving on to the Myerding classification, this is divided into five grades. Grade 1 corresponds to less than 25% translation. Grade 2 corresponds to 25 to 50% translation. Grade 3 corresponds to 50 to 75% translation. Grade 4 corresponds to 75 to 100% translation. And grade 5 corresponds to spondyloptosis. Moving on to physical exam, symptoms of adult ischemic spondylolisthesis include axial back pain, leg pain, neurogenic claudication, and cauda syndrome. So axial back pain is the most common presentation, and the pain usually has a long history with periodic episodes that vary in intensity and duration. Leg pain is usually secondary to an L5 radiculopathy, usually caused by foraminal stenosis at the L5-S1 level. Neurogenic claudication is caused by spinal stenosis and is characterized by buttock and leg pain worse with walking. Symptoms of neurogenic claudication are rare because these slips rarely progress beyond grade 2. Finally, cauda equina syndrome is also rare because these slips rarely progress beyond grade 2.
on physical exam in adult ismic spondylolisthesis patients, you may find evidence of L5 radiculopathy, which will manifest with ankle dorsiflexion and EHL weakness. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, lateral, oblique, and flexion extension views. Findings on AP may reveal deformity in the coronal plane. On the lateral, you will see spondylolisthesis and a pars defect. And on flexion extension views, know that instability is defined as 4 millimeters of translation or 10 degrees of angulation of motion compared to adjacent motion segments. As far as measurements, the ones to know include pelvic incidence, pelvic tilt, and sacral slope. Pelvic incidence equals the pelvic tilt plus the sacral slope. This is determined with a line that is drawn from the center of the S1 end plate to the center of the femoral head. A second line is drawn perpendicular to a line drawn along the S1 end plate, intersecting the point in the center of the S1 end plate. The angle between these two lines is the pelvic incidence. Be sure to refer to the figure on orthobullets.com or the Bullets app. The pelvic incidence correlates with the severity of disease and the pelvic incidence has direct correlation with the myerding newman grade. Moving on to pelvic tilt, pelvic tilt equals pelvic incidence minus sacral slope. This is determined with a line that is drawn from the center of the S1 end plate to the center of the femoral head, and then a second vertical line, parallel with the side margin of the radiograph, is drawn intersecting the center of the femoral head. The angle between these two lines is the pelvic tilt. Again, be sure to refer to the image on orthobullets.com or the Bullets app. Finally, sacral slope equals the pelvic incidence minus the pelvic tilt. This is determined with the line that is drawn parallel to the S1 end plate, and then a second horizontal line that is parallel to the inferior margin of the radiograph is drawn, and then the angle between these two lines is the sacral slope. Be sure to refer to the image on orthobullets.com or the Bullets app. Finally, as far as MRI, in terms of views, the T2 parasagittal images are the best study to evaluate for foraminal stenosis and compression of the neural elements. Moving on to treatment of adult ismic spondylolisthesis, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes oral medications, lifestyle modifications, and therapy. This is indicated for most patients and can be treated non-operatively. Techniques include activity restriction, NSAIDs, know that the role of injections is unclear, and bracing may be beneficial, especially in the acute phase. Operative options include L5-S1 decompression and instrumented fusion, plus or minus reduction. Indications include L5-S1 low-grade spondylolisthesis with persistent and incapacitating pain that has failed six months of non-operative management, which is the most common indication. Other indications include progressive neurologic deficit, slip progression, and cauteroquinus syndrome. With respect to reduction, note that there's improved sagittal balance with the reduction. However, there is a risk of stretch injury to the L5 nerve root with reduction. Another operative option is an L4-S1 decompression and instrumented fusion plus or minus reduction, and this is indicated for L5-S1 high-grade spondylolisthesis with persistent and incapacitating pain that has failed six months of non-operative management. Finally, another potential operative option is an anterior lumbar interbody fusion, or an ALIF, which can be used successfully to treat low-grade ismic spondylolisthesis even when radicular symptoms are present. This cannot be used to treat high-grade ismic spondylolisthesis due to translational and angular deformity. As far as outcomes, know that studies have shown good to excellent results in 87-94% to of patients at 2 years. Now, let's talk about some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. So, L5-S1 wide decompression and instrumented fusion is approached through a posterior midline approach. Decompression is indicated in an adult with leg pain below the knee. This usually involves a gill laminectomy and foraminal decompression. Know that removal of a loose lamina and a scarred pars defect allows decompression of the nerve root. 
Remember that a gill decompression is destabilizing and should be combined with the fusion. As far as fusion, know that a posterolateral fusion is standard. An inner body fusion, that is a P-lift slash T-lift, is commonly performed. A posterior lumbar inner body fusion or P-lift involves insertion of a device medial to the facets. A transferominal lumbar inner body fusion or a T-lift requires facetectomy and a more lateralized and transferominal approach to the disc space. As far as cons, note that an interbody fusion has increased operative time with greater blood loss and longer hospitalizations. Moving on to an anterior lumbar inner body fusion or an A-lift, as far as the approach, this is usually done through a transretroperitoneal approach. Moving on to decompression, know that decompression of the nerve root is done indirectly by foraminal distraction by a restoration of discite. As far as fusion, grafts used include autologous iliac crest grafts, structural allograft, and cages of various materials. The pros of an A-lift is that you may increase the chance of union by more complete discectomy and end plate preparation. This allows improved restoration of discite. Cons of an A-lift is retrograde ejaculation and sexual dysfunction, persistent radiculopathy due to inadequate indirect foraminal decompression, and know that persistent low back pain may be caused by nociceptive pain fibers in the pars defect that are not removed in an anterior procedure alone. In general, know that the preferred treatment is surgeon-dependent with each technique having similar outcomes. Complications to mention include pseudoarthrosis and dural tear. To end this review session, let's quickly talk about the prognosis of adult ischemic spondylolisthesis. So know that relatively few patients, that is about 5% of patients, with spondylolysis will develop spondylolisthesis. Know that slip progression is more common in females, and slip progression usually occurs in adolescence and is rare after skeletal maturity. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. A 17-year-old gymnast presents with increasing lower back pain and lower extremity radiculopathy over the course of one year. Standing AP and lateral radiographs of the lumbar spine show a Meyerding grade 3 ischemic spondylolisthesis. The patient has attempted physical therapy, bracing, and steroid injections but continues to have constant pain. The patient opts to proceed with surgery. Which of the following statements is true? And the choices are 1. L5-S1 posterior spinal fusion with instrumentation has the highest fusion rates. 2. L4-S1 posterior spinal fusion with instrumentation and spondylolisthesis reduction has the lowest L5 nerve root injuries. 3. L5-S1 anterior lumbar inner body fusion has the best functional outcomes. 4. L5-S1 transferominal lumbar inner body fusion has the lowest dural tear rates. And 5. Surgeon preference with most techniques having similar outcomes. The correct answer to this question is 5, surgeon preference with most techniques having similar outcomes. So the patient is presenting with a high-grade Meyerding 3 ischemic spondylolisthesis with persistent symptoms which requires surgical stabilization and fusion. The optimal surgical technique is surgeon-specific with comparative studies reporting similar outcomes. Ischemic spondylolisthesis is due to disruption of the pars interarticularis, usually at L5, resulting in anterolisthesis of the L5 body on S1. Hyperextension athletes such as weightlifters, football linemen, and gymnasts are commonly affected. However, there is believed to be a genetic component due to the high incidence seen with the Inuits. Initial treatment consists of non-operative modalities including bracing, activity modification, physical therapy, and injections. Patients with persistent symptoms may improve with surgical reduction and fusion. However, the literature does not specifically support one technique over another, with most techniques having similar outcomes. 
Endler et al. performed a retrospective registry study examining outcomes following fusion for adult ismic spondylolisthesis. The authors found that there are improved short-term outcomes in patients undergoing inner body fusion or posterolateral fusion with instrumentation compared to posterolateral fusion without instrumentation with differences diminishing at seven years follow-up. There were significantly higher reoperation rates in patients undergoing instrumentation or inner body fusion. The authors concluded that instrumentation and inner body fusion techniques do not provide any outcome advantage for patients undergoing surgery for ismic spondylolisthesis. Thirukumaran et al. performed a retrospective study examining national trends in surgical treatment for adult ismic spondylolisthesis. They found that fusion surgeries were performed 4.33 times more often in 2011 than in 1998, with significant increases in anterior spinal fusions, inner body fusions, and combined anterior-posterior fusions. Complications and hospital charges were reported to be significantly higher with combined anterior-posterior fusions, with lower rates seen in females and elective admissions. The authors concluded that inner body fusion became the most preferred approach during the study period. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, L5-S1 posterior spinal fusion with instrumentation has the highest fusion rates, is incorrect as L5-S1 posterior spinal fusion with instrumentation has comparable fusion rates to inner body techniques. Answer 2, L4-S1 posterior spinal fusion with instrumentation and spondylolisthesis reduction has the lowest L5 nerve root injuries is incorrect as reduction of a spondylolisthesis can potentially lead to a traction injury of the L5 nerve root. Answer 3, L5-S1 anterior lumbar inner body fusion has the best functional outcomes is incorrect as inner body techniques have similar outcomes as posterior spinal fusion and combined anterior and posterior spinal fusion. Finally, answer 4, L5-S1 transferaminal lumbar inner body fusion has the lowest dural tear rates is incorrect, as complication rates vary between techniques, but transferaminal inner body techniques have been reported to have higher nerve root injuries and dural tears due to the surgical approach and retraction is necessary for placement of the inner body device. And moving on to the final question, a 64-year-old female presents with severe low back pain and bilateral leg pain, worse on the right. AP and lateral radiographs in extension show a grade 2 adult ismic spondylolisthesis. After extensive non-operative management fails to provide any significant pain relief, surgical intervention is performed. A laminectomy and instrumented fusion is performed. Postoperative radiographs reveal reduction of the grade 2 slip with placement of pedicle screws and an inner body device. What would be the most likely neurologic deficit found in the postoperative period? And the choices are 1. Weakness to ankle plantar flexion. 2. Weakness to great toe extension. 3. Weakness to hip flexion. 4. Loss of the patellar reflex. And 5. Bowel and bladder dysfunction, saddle anesthesia. The correct answer to this question is 2. Weakness to great toe extension. So the clinical scenario is consistent with the grade 2 adult ismic spondylolisthesis that was treated with reduction and fusion. The L5 nerve root is at greatest risk of injury and would present with weakness to great toe extension. Adult ismic spondylolisthesis at L5-S1 often leads to radicular symptoms caused by compression of the exiting L5 nerve root in the L5-S1 foramen. Compression can be caused by hypertrophic fibrous repair tissue of the pars defect, uncinate spur formation of the posterior L5 body, or bulging of the L5-S1 disc. Patraco et al. performed a cadaver study looking at the effects of reduction of an adult ismic spondylolisthesis on the L5 nerve root. They found that injury to the L5 nerve with reduction of a high-grade spondylolisthesis is not linear, with 71% of the total L5 nerve strain occurring during the second half of reduction. 
They suggest partial reduction may be a significantly safer treatment approach for high-grade spondylolisthesis than complete reduction. Jones et al. review adult ismic spondylolisthesis. They report most symptomatic cases are successfully managed non-surgically, but patients with intractable pain or neurologic symptoms may benefit from surgical decompression and stabilization. Surgical intervention has shown greater than 80% success in appropriately selected patients with a low incidence of complications. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, weakness to ankle plantar flexion is incorrect, as weakness to ankle plantar flexion would be caused by injury to the S1 nerve root. Answer 3, weakness to hip flexion is incorrect, as this would be caused by injury to the L2 and L3 nerve root. Answer 4, loss of the patellar reflex is incorrect, as this would be caused by an injury to the L4 nerve root. And finally, answer 5, bowel and bladder dysfunction, saddle anesthesia is incorrect, as this is characteristic of a cauda equina syndrome. That's all for this review about adult ismic spondylolisthesis. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.